Hello and welcome to the final episode of this season of the Woody Allen Pages podcast. I'm ending it with a wrap-up of your thoughts and comments, some questions, and some things about what is next. So, without further ado, let's get into it. First, I have to thank the new patrons. Thanks to Jonah, thanks to Ria, thanks to Paul, thanks to Andre, thanks to Robert, and thanks to John, who are my new supporters this season. I really appreciate what you guys bring to it, and also all the people who continue to support me from season one and between season one. I couldn't do this without your support. The Patreons get a bunch of cool stuff, like the ebook versions of my books, and also a new book, which is going to be the scripts of this podcast, which I'm still working on transcribing season two. I've also uploaded the high-res artwork that you see in the podcast for you guys to do whatever you want with. It's big enough to print your own posters. Whatever you want to do, it's yours. Patrons also get the list of films before they come out. So I'm currently working on season three, and if you want to know what I'm working on so you have a few extra weeks to watch those films, just feel free to get in touch. Otherwise, I'll let you know closer to the date. Speaking of films, so let's go through some of what happened this season. So we started with Vicky Cristina Barcelona. A lot of people loved this film and liked how it inverts Woody Allen tropes. Jacob asked me if I've ever been to Spain, and yes, I have, actually. I've been to Madrid and Barcelona and Benicassim and a few other places. It's a wonderful, wonderful place, although I didn't run away with an artist and no one tried to shoot me. You know, one of the most common questions I get running this website and podcast is just to be travel guide. I always get asked about places to go in Paris or where the Midnight in Paris steps are. And of course, things to do in New York. And especially if Woody Allen is playing in New York. One of the things I really want to do, and it's on the site, is come up with the ultimate map of every Woody Allen location. You can see on the website I've been doing it film by film for the last couple of years, doing all the research, and one day, one day, I really want to put out like a Lonely Planet guide of just Woody Allen locations around the world. It's going to take me another couple of years, but it's something that I really want to do. Kirby points out a wonderful scene from Vicky Cristina Barcelona that I didn't highlight. It's when Vicky is getting dressed near the end of the film to meet Juan Antonio one more time. It's funny because Alan has done that scene for laughs, you know. He, he did it with Owen Wilson's character getting ready in Midnight in Paris, and then the family walks in and it's a bit of a punchline. But here in this romantic film, it feels so different, and it just goes to show how much the tone affects the writing. Sleeper, I would say, most of you were split on. Some of you loved it, but a lot of you just sort of liked it and didn't love it. I suspect it's down to where you start with Alan, and I'll talk a little bit more about that later. On Celebrity, some of you disagreed with me about it being top tier, and I get it. That Kenneth Branagh performance, it's hard to get past. For Blue Jasmine, several of you disagreed with me on the Sally Hawkins stuff. One listener, David, hello, said it best when he said it's a bit like Crimes and Misdemeanors, that thing of contrasting stories. Ginger gets the happy ending that Jasmine kind of... Not craves, I guess, but you can see the difference between the two. And I completely agree with David on that one. And, of course, the film seems to be really well loved by you. Purple Rose of Cairo. Well, look, it's interesting because a lot of you liked it, but no one really said it was the 
sort of top-tier classic that Alan claims it is. Some of you liked the brothel scenes better than me and noted quite rightly that those prostitutes contrast the romanticism that's seen on the screen. And again, you're absolutely right. Manhattan. Wow. I did so much work on this episode and guess what? I missed a huge thing. Marshall Brickman. Marshall Brickman was the co-writer of Manhattan and several of you emailed me and pointed out that I missed it. I think probably spent 50% of all the production time on season two on Manhattan because I just know how important that film is but I also know that its reputation is kind of taken a bit of a battering in recent years and I really wanted to just put everything back in its place and I guess I was concentrating on that so much because unlike every other episode where I'm just trying to tell the story and give my take this one I was trying to come at it almost with an angle and then what I missed a huge thing with Marshall Brickman I will also say that Brickman and Alan they've both said a lot of stories about how they wrote Annie Hall and I guess they maybe just go, well, that's also how we wrote Manhattan. We just walked around Central Park, trading ideas, and then Alan went back to his apartment and typed it up. I don't think that they did anything too different on Manhattan than Annie Hall. I mean, they came pretty close together, so there weren't really any stories to tell. But Marshall Brickman is a big part of that film. It made me almost want to just re-record that episode and put it out on the feed again, but I'm saying it here. I was really overwhelmed by the nice comments on this one because a lot of people emailed me and tweeted me saying that they hadn't seen it in ages and and they loved it but they forgot about certain aspects and it just brought the film back for them. And look, it's not a humble brag from me. The film is great. Go and watch it again. I know I enjoyed watching it. Having not really watched it in about five, six years, it's so great. Curse of the Jade Scorpion. Well, I don't think anyone disagreed with me that it is one of Alan's rougher films. And mostly, people didn't even agree with me that Helen Hunt was at least good, so a write-off. There was some division amongst you all on Mighty Aphrodite. Some people really loved it, like some said top five, while others were quite cold. It really explains the box office, I guess. Some people just really loved it, but a lot of people just eh, didn't really like it. And finally, Rifkin's Festival. Oh, Rifkin's Festival. You know, you really want Alan's latest film to be good. You really want to, you know, say that he's still at the top of his game. And he really is when you look at his last four or five films. But I think most of you still feel like Rifkin's Festival was, you know, not one of his best. A bit of a dud. And the casting was still a problem. On that film, Bob Black asked me about voiceovers. And, you know, we were talking about the voiceover used in Rifkin's Festival and how I felt about voiceovers that Alan uses. And for me, sometimes it's great. Alan's use of it in Radio Days makes that film. And he's a writer, and it's how he comes to the filmmaking. Vicky Cristina Barcelona is another good one. But sometimes he does use it to shortcut things. Like anything, there's good and bad versions. But I point to Radio Days, and maybe Everyone Says I Love You, as really great uses of it. And, you know... Radio Days might just be the best use of voiceover in any film. On to some questions. Well, Jacob asked me a few, and he asked me, which Woody Allen film would I remake? Well, look, it's an interesting question because, you know, they're so of the time, and, you know, you could say The Curse of the Jade Scorpion and recast it, 
But uh, for me, I think if you remake something, it has to be about redoing the execution. And so, yeah, I kind of want to put, like, John Cusack in every Alan role and see what happens. But then you look at films like Sleeper and you go, imagine if that was, like, a big-budget sci-fi comedy with seamless modern CGI. I don't know who you'd get to play the Alan role. I can't immediately think of someone who is a great slapstick actor. But I think that film would be funnier if it looked more expensive. Jake had also asked me a couple of things about Mel Brooks, which I'll answer. Look, Mel Brooks and Woody Allen are an interesting duo because, look, I love Mel Brooks as much as anyone. The two cover really similar ground at times and both knew each other and they shared a writer's room working with Sid Caesar. But as far as I can tell, at best the two are rivals. They're not friends. They never mention each other. Woody's never mentioned in any sort of documentary about Mel, and Mel isn't mentioned in documentaries about Woody. They don't talk about each other as influences. Mel, for his part, and this is just what I suspect, I think Mel thinks Alan is full of himself and unfairly gets all the critical acclaim. But Mel is kind of more successful and now has found this rich career in musicals. And Alan really wanted to replicate that and failed with Bullets Over Broadway. So I think Mel might be a bit jealous of Alan being, you know, the most nominated screenwriter in Academy history. But I think Alan is kind of a bit bitter that Mel has the bigger audience and more people know who he is. So I think they're rivals. The only direct story I know of Alan really talking about Mel Brooks is during the production of Annie Hall, and Tony Roberts lost a copy of his script, and Alan joked that Mel Brooks probably broke into his trailer and stole it. It says a lot that Alan saw him sort of as a jealous rival, but also you can see Alan's jealousy in that comment. I don't think they hate each other or anything. I suspect that they probably get asked about each other a lot, and they're just probably sick of it. But yeah, I don't think they're friends, I think they're rivals. If they think about each other at all. Jacob also was talking to me about Gene Wilder, and I'll go back to that earlier point of wanting to put other actors in the Woody Allen role and seeing what happens to his films. Because Gene Wilder has his anger. He has the ability to look like he's burning with annoyance. He's an actor where you kind of want to pile problems on top of problems for him and see what happens. So Allen's characters are usually a bit more open about anxiety. They don't usually bottle it in the way that Gene Wilder sort of is so great at doing. But there are a couple, and I'm thinking of Shadows and Fog or Deconstructing Harry or Celebrity, where the main character is just sort of in hell. And I think Gene would have been fantastic in those roles. Tony sent me some thoughts on Woody's films, and we got talking about the film a year thing. Now, there's lots of artists that do the same, like Neil Simon did the same for many years and how that's a part of his process. I'm a big Bob Dylan fan and a big Neil Young fan, and I see the same in both those artists. I don't know if I get it personally, but those artists, for some reason, they just like to put out albums all the time. And they put out albums because they must know that this album isn't the best, you know? You have other bands like U2 who seem to, like, just stay in a studio for eight years and then just works on something that is always a major statement. And, you know, the same happens on Broadway all the time. You look at Stephen Sondheim, everything takes years to put together, everything is a major work. But for the Bob Dylans and the Woody Allens and the Neil Simon, there's something really different about it, and they just like putting stuff out, and that just seems to be their thing. So it's interesting because it leads to, you know, some films that aren't the best, but does it lead to more good films? That's the question. 
Harry sent me a couple of questions, one of which is he wanted to place my accent. Uh, it's something I get asked a couple of times. Look, I'm in Australia and I grew up in Australia, but I lived in London for many years and it's just a mix of various English things. Uh, Harry also asked me how I discovered Woody Allen. Well, look, I'll spend a bit of time on this one. I discovered Woody Allen in the 90s. He was just kind of around. I'm sure I heard about him in the 80s. He's Woody Allen. But obviously the whole Mia Farrow thing I remember very clearly on the news and it was on the front page of every paper. And I remember very clearly Manhattan murder mystery coming out and seeing the posters around at the cinema. Annie Hall, you know, I can't remember exactly when, but was definitely on a list of films that I needed to see, especially when you were like 15 and 16 and exploring film and going back and watching The Godfather. And, you know, this is the era of Tarantino, which I talked about so much, and Kevin Smith and those things. So, you know, learning about film history was suddenly cool. So at some point, I must have rented Annie Hall and Manhattan and started going back. But, you know, Alan was just there with a lot of others like Scorsese and Hitchcock or Spielberg. Just someone's famous who, you know, I wanted to work through their filmography. The thing that really made me fall in love with Woody Allen on reflection was his comedy albums. Those comedy albums on CD, I listened to them all the time. They are some of the most quoted comedy routines you can ever find. And as funny as anything that Mel Brooks or Monty Python or anyone else did, they were funny, but also funny in a way that I had never heard before. Intellectual humour, full of obscure references and absurd digressions, like how can someone overdose on mahjong tiles? There's a repeatability to those comedy albums that you don't get with the films. I mean, when I fell in love with like Annie Hall or Manhattan or Hannah and her sisters, I didn't watch those films every day. But there's probably some periods where I listened to those Woody Allen albums every day. Because I could just put on those comedy albums for a little while and not have to be invested in the whole film. And let's face it, you kind of wanted to learn the lines and you kind of wanted to nail that delivery and kind of, you know, say those jokes. I've heard people say the same thing about Monty Python because back in the day you couldn't buy Monty Python videos or DVD and they didn't have the repeats but you could listen to the albums over and over again. That was the bit that you could take home. And for me, I definitely owned those comedy albums before I bought Woody Allen videos or DVDs. And that's really how I fell in love with Woody Allen. So I don't know how Allen fans today get into him because I know a lot of people discovered him through Midnight in Paris or Vicky Cristina Barcelona or Blue Jasmine in recent years. And I guess if you go back, you can see the same director of Midnight in Paris in Annie Hall or Manhattan. But Love and Death and Sleeper, I mean, those seem like films made by a very different guy. And if you don't come to Alan with humour first, I wonder what happens when you discover how funny he is. If that's your experience, please get in contact. I'd love to know. But look, I definitely hold those comedy albums dear as my way into Woody Allen's world. Checking. What did I flash this watch? I flash it all the time. It's my antique pocket watch and it makes me look British. And I need that for my analysis. <laughs> it is a gorgeous gold pocket watch, however, I am proud of it. And obviously, my grandfather on his deathbed sold me this watch. So, what next? Well, season two is wrapped, and I will do some stuff to wrap up that season and do some stuff on the website, but season three, I have started work on. I know which episodes I want to do, I've started scripting them. I started just double-checking all the research. 
and I'm going to turn on the mics and start recording new episodes really soon. The plan is it will be with you before the year is out. If I'm really clever, and I'm not, I will try and release Everyone Says I Love You around Christmas. That just feels right, if all goes to plan. Patreon supporters, if you want to know the films I'm working on, just reach out, let me know. I'm happy to share it with you, give you that extra few months to try and, you know, watch the films before season three comes out. But of course, I reserve the right to change my mind if I decide, ah, I'm going to talk about a different film instead. Thanks to everyone who listened this season, who supported me, left a message, or were just generally nice. I won't plug any more stuff. If you're listening to this episode, I'm sure you've listened to all my outros and you get it. There's links in the descriptions to things. What more do you want? And it's not really an off-season because the website will keep going, including getting ready to cover the production of a new Woody Allen film in Paris, a new jazz band tour, and I want to reread a few of my favourite bits of Zero Gravity. Thanks again for listening, and see you soon for season three. My grandfather was a very insignificant man, actually. At his funeral, his hearse followed the other cars. It was a nice funeral, though. You would have liked it. It was a catered funeral. It was held in the big hall with accordion players. On the buffet table, there was a replica of the deceased in potato salad. (laughs) 